Hi there. I'm Lee Redhead, a writer and member of Sisters in Crime Australia. Welcome to Scarlet Stiletto Bites, scintillating short stories by Australian women. Our weekly podcast is designed for busy lives. Each murder mystery is short, but not always sweet. Expect twisted tales, quirky humour, imagination, and a frisson of feminism. Sisters in Crime Australia's Scarlet Stiletto Awards were established in 1994 to unearth criminal literary talent. We're producing these podcasts of winning stories to celebrate the sisters' 30th anniversary ceremony in Melbourne in late 2023. The concept designer and narrator is fellow sister, actor, barrister, broadcaster, and best-selling true crime author, Susanna Lopez. Hello, Susanna here. Some teens love the idea of solving a mystery, a puzzle, even a crime. But today's story is about wishful thinking, the magic thinking of a child. Bunyip's Last Wish by Candace Graham, winner, 2013 First Prize, Scarlet Stiletto Award. I hold on to a spindly tea tree for support. I'm standing on a clump of dirt and dead grass that could easily give way if I shift my weight in the wrong direction. My dad often jokes that I inherited my swan neck from my mum. I try to stretch it out as far as possible to see where Mandy was pointing deep within the gully. Can you see it, Kelly? She whispers. I scan the shadowy creek water. Immediately I know why she has called us to a halt. My mum told me never to swear. She said that swearing is just a way out for people who have poor vocabularies. But I swear now. The tea tree lets out a warning crack under my weight. I'm going down there, I announce. Technically, we shouldn't be here, taking a shortcut through my neighbour's land. I capture mixed words of protest before Mandy's voice is drowned out by my footsteps, crunching dried leaves. The air cools as I descend. Mosquitoes and other small bugs float over the stagnant water, which sends a chill through my plastic gumboots. I hear Mandy moving about above me, occasionally sending down trails of dirt as she she tries to find the easiest path. The number of flies increases as I get closer. Eventually, Mandy appears beside me and pinches her nose shut. The creature is roughly our size, maybe shorter if it were standing upright. Its long thin arms and legs have oversized joints. The hands and feet are hidden deep within the mud. Its belly is massive and bulging, the skin slimy and pale grey with dark splodges. Its bulbous head is jutted forward, completely hiding the creature's neck. It has a a snout that's half covered in a tough nose, a bit like a koala's. The nostrils are just slits. 
The jaw is clenched, but it looks large enough to be filled with rows of sharp teeth. Like a leaf on a, on a stem, the ears start as tubes before flaring out widely. It has large silver eyes with frog-like pupils. While we gesture at its bizarre features, the eyes continue to stare vacantly at the opposite wall of the gully. It is unmistakably dead. The reason is obvious to both of us. Two spears penetrate the creature, one in the belly and a fatal blow aimed at the top of its spine. Unlike the naturally falling branches, the spears are are smooth and handcrafted. Insects gravitate toward the carcass, eagerly picking at its wounds. This, coupled with the submerged body parts and the dark walls of the gully, create the impression that the earth is trying to reclaim the creature and conceal it from prying human eyes. Who did this? I ask. I pull on the spear jabbed into its stomach. The creature jerks, sending the insects up in a furious wave and causing the release of an additional foul odour. The spear will not come loose. Mandy has had enough of the insects and the smell. We climb back up and perch on a fallen ghost gum. It's a bunyip, Mandy declares. Bunyips aren't real, I say. But the strange creature could be one for all I know. My Uncle Jim reckons they're real. They're just good at hiding. He said you're cursed if you kill a bunyip, but if you catch the killer, the bunyip's spirit will grant you a wish. Wishes? That's genies, not bunyips. Mandy often embellishes stories, but she looks adamant. Wouldn't it be great to get a wish? I do want to find the killer. We pinky swear to keep the bunyip a secret until we get the wish. Our summer holidays have offered very little amusement, so Mandy is delighted by the prospect of this new game. Oh, we could wish for two ponies! She exclaims as we start making our way across the empty paddocks. The long grass itches my bare legs. As I stop to scratch, I notice something metal catch the light. Thinking it's a 20-cent piece, I pick up the silver desk. What is it? Mandy calls. Our first clue. We take a shortcut along the back of a dairy farm, rich with the smell of manure. The drought means all of the mud is dried out and cracked, making it easy to walk over. I feel sad when we reach a rotting shed. Loads of tiny kittens live in the shed and they cry out for our attention. The first time I came to this dairy farm with my parents, I ran excitedly towards the kittens, but the owner grabbed me by the wrist and and got me to really look at them. They are diseased. All of the feral cats here pass diseases to their children, so they never really stand a chance of growing up healthy. Something just went past me, 
says Mandy, and the kitten hisses before ducking back into the shed. As we stand still, I hear a sharp thwack against the timber panels. Faint giggling comes from behind a stack of rusted tie rims. Jesse Thomas, I call. I will skin you and your brothers alive. Three boys emerge from behind the tyres. They have scratched knees and their clothes are dirty and grass-stained. The youngest is blonde-haired Cody, who wipes snot from his nose onto his sleeve. In the middle, with mousy-coloured hair, is Dwayne. He looks like a ferret, the, the nasty kind that bites. The tallest and eldest is Jesse Thomas, who was firing the projectiles. He passes the slingshot to Dwayne and reaches into his pocket. Not if I skin you first, he says, holding up a pocket knife. These are the Barkley boys. The brothers are well-known pests in our town. I've seen Jesse Thomas kicking down fence posts, throwing stones at windows and stealing. Jesse is in the year above us at school, but I hear he often skips class to sleep on the roof. Dwayne is in the year below us and Cody has just finished prep. All three are known for starting fights with students and teachers. Over the years, at least one of them tends to have broken bones in a cast. The holidays make matters worse. In boredom, they get more destructive. Mandy grabs my arm and pulls me along. We don't have time to waste on you. Leaving the Barkley boys far behind, we reach the town centre and enter the small public library. But the only paperback I can find on bunyips is a little kid's picture book. Our only other clue is the silver disc I found yesterday in Tucker's paddock. One side of the disc is bare and there's a small hole at the top. The other side has a word etched onto the metal. Fido. It's a dog tag. Mr Tucker only has one dog and its name is Billy. It's old and smells bad. Most people in our town own dogs, but I have no idea who owns a dog named Fido or or, or what it looks like. We spend most of the day looking for as many dogs as we can find. Whilst old Phil sits reading his newspaper, I stop to pat his Jack Russell, but the name Fred is written on its collar. The grocer has a dog called Sam in the yard behind his shop. Mrs Magdani has two Pomeranians in her front yard, but she calls them Princess and Precious, certainly not Fido. As we pass dog owners, Mandy takes a a new approach to our lack of information about bunyips. We're doing a school project, she lies. Do you know anything about bunyips? The answers we receive vary considerably. Phil suggests they are big and covered in scales with yellow eyes and sharp teeth to eat fish. The grocer says they are like horses that can swim under water and eat seaweed. Mrs Magdani replies they are furry with big tusks and horns and love to howl at the moon. An older girl from our school says they're like birds with a a beak and feathers and, and chicken legs. Sucks you have homework, 
I don't remember having to do that project, she adds. We are also told they look like a dog with webbed feet, a hippopotamus or like a platypus. For a town with a bunyip in it, nobody seems to know anything about them, says Mandy irritably. The general store is blissfully air-conditioned. The sudden change in temperature causes my skin to get goosebumps. Mandy rubbages for the cheapest icy poles at the bottom of the freezer while I bug Leslie with questions about who buys dog food. I know most of the names she mentions, but falter at Melissa Kennedy. Don't you mean Melissa Barkley? I ask when Leslie mentions the Barkley boy's mother. No, she legally changed it, says Leslie, looking somewhat flustered discussing this topic with me. What about her sons? I ask. Leslie shifts uncomfortably, presumably wrestling with how much to tell me. She said they could decide for themselves when they're older. But she also adds... Those boys will end up in prison too, no doubt. They're always stealing from me. Her face is slightly flushed now, but with my hopes raised, I try for one more question. Do you know the name of their dog? It's called Buckley. You stay away from their dog, Kelly. Mr Buckley used to kick it and throw stones at it. It's completely vicious. That night, I dream that the bunyip is angry and it has decided to eat me. I must have been calling out in my sleep because my dad nudges me awake. He gives me a hug and asks me if I want to talk about it. No, I say, trying to forget the dream, but I don't want him to leave just yet either. So I show him the dog tag and ask if he knows anyone who owns a dog named Fido. Fido, he asks. Yeah, I know a dog named Fido. Who does it belong to? I ask enthusiastically. I hate the name that comes as his response. The sun is harsh once again. We find out he is drinking in the pub, but it takes a while for him to come outside to talk to us. Dan Barkley. He looks utterly confused by our presence. Uh, we, we found this, I say, giving him the dog tag, and just wanted to give it back to you. Dad said it belonged to your dog. Huh, didn't know it was missing, he responds. I worked with your dad the other day. I don't think he likes me much. He won't come out drinking with us, Kelly. You should tell him to be more sociable, eh? I don't blame my dad for being unsociable. Already I can feel myself becoming agitated in this man's presence. His lazy voice, his stench of booze and cigarettes, his ruffled up shirt and the stubble on his chin. The way his facial features resemble his incarcerated brother. Everything about Dan Barkley irritates me. He nods his thanks and turns back to the pub. Before you go, Mr Barkley, could you... Could you tell us anything about bunyips? I ask, watching him closely. The dog tag was right next to the scene of the crime. He has to know something, but he reacts like everybody else. Aren't they green monsters that live in billabongs? 
lockdown takes my disappointed face as a challenge. But stay away from bunyips, Kelly, they're evil. They steal small children and drag them away to the water and drown them. They'll eat you up. Dan seems to revel in Mandy's discomfort. Did you know there are cave drawings about the bunyip? He continues. At Dead Man's Peak. But you better not go there. A black panther escaped from a circus and has been living in the bush there ever since. (laughs) Dan laughs loudly, then causes us to flinch when he yells, Oi! You lads sulking back there. Get over here and say hello to your uncle. The Barkley boys have been watching us, but they look reluctant to come closer. Dan is on them like a predator on prey. He brushes Mandy and I aside as he goes for Jesse and captures him with one muscular arm in a headlock. Don't! I yell, but instantly regret drawing Dan's attention. Oh, go home and cry to your mother, he spits. Mandy grabs my arm as tears swell in my eyes. Next, Dan hisses in Jessie's ear. You don't visit me anymore. Haven't visited your dad. Your mum lets you walk all over her, doesn't she? Now that your dad's not around to give you a firm hand. As Jessie struggles, the older Barkley laughs. You're so slow. No wonder you keep losing at fights. Dan lets go and Jessie crumples onto the ground. Mandy and I leave a wide berth as Dan re-enters the pub and calls out for another beer. Jesse Thomas turns his dark eyes on me. He was completely humiliated in front of us and that means we are the ones he'll take it out on. I really hate these Barclays. I shove two water bottles and some muesli bars in my backpack. I find my old compass too, just in case. But really, there are only two directions for Dead Man's Peak, up and down. The paddocks at the edge of town are wild and overgrown. Mandy and I have a hard time avoiding blackberry bushes. The bushland is a sprawling mixture of lightly shaded gums and smaller deep green trees. Petosperums, I think, remembering the way my mum pronounced it. The Petosporums have bright orange seed capsules about the size of marbles. No doubt they make perfect slingshot material for the Barkley boys. Snakes could easily hide under the thick layers of bark and leaf litter, though we stomp our feet to keep them at bay. Finding makeshift paths becomes increasingly difficult. The bone seed bushes grow in big bunches that are too thick to climb through. I pull out some baby shoots of the noxious weed in protest, but my efforts are disrupted when Mandy tightly grabs my shoulder in alarm. Kelly, I just saw something, she whispers. I consider making a joke about the escaped panther. Then I hear the birdsong change around me. The noisy miners live up to their name as they set off a chorus of alarm calls. There must be a predator nearby. I look out towards the bush and fear sweeps through me. There is something running, something big and black. I see the dark shadow bound upwards in a fluid motion. It's it's low to the ground and, and streamlined. As it ducks and weaves through the undergrowth, 
I fail to capture a good look at it, and I tell myself there's no way the legend about the escaped panther can be true. But a little voice in my head says, Well, last week you didn't believe in bunyips either. Remember how that turned out? The noisy miners are beginning to calm down. The predator must have moved on. Uh, it was uh, just a wallaby, I lied to Mandy. If we turn back now, we'll never find answers. Now every unusual noise makes me flinch. Look, I think that's it, shrieks Mandy. And I feel like telling her to keep her voice down. There are boulders and shrubs at the top and then a, a sharp cliff face, perfect for long-lost Aboriginal drawings. Mandy and I eagerly scan the rock. Nothing. I reach the last corner and, and the cliff forms a, a shallow cave, just as I think our journey was pointless. I look up towards the roof. There are drawings. Oh, we found it, yells Mandy. The drawings show three stick figures standing from tallest to shortest, each holding a long spear. In the next scene, the stick figures are confronted by a monster with big teeth and claws. Two of the stick figures throw their spears and hit the creature. The drawings then show an excessive amount of blood gushing from the monster which slumps down, defeated. The stick figures cheer in success, the smallest one holding its spear in the air, the other two raising their arms high. Mandy is bouncing in excitement as she moves from scene to scene, but I shake my head and touch the drawing. It's crayon. Laughter erupts from above us. Boys' laughter. You might as well come out now, I call. Mandy looks up in surprise as the Barkley boys emerge. Trailing behind them is a large black figure, which I realise is no phantom panther, but rather their muscular dog, Buckley. With a good amount of apprehension, I see that the dog is unrestrained. Mandy steps behind me as Buckley lets out some ear-splitting barks. Jesse rests his hand on the dog's back as it growls at us. He has a victorious grin on his stupid face and his brothers are still chuckling. Ha! You like our artwork, do ya? He asks gleefully. Worth the trip, wasn't it? I sense that my face is turning red and I feel angry at myself. Of course, they overheard us talking to their uncle. How could they resist playing a little practical joke? Mandy and I had come all this way for nothing. Dan Barkley probably just lied about Dead Man's Peak for his own amusement. I am overwhelmed with hatred for all the Barkleys. I could punch Jesse Thompson in the head. Maybe that would wipe away his ugly smirk. Instead, I try to keep my voice controlled as I yell a warning to him. You keep that dog under control, Jesse Thomas, or, or else it will it will get put down. Cody doesn't like that comment one bit. He nudges Jesse to take hold of Buckley's collar. Let's get out of here, mutters Mandy. We start our way down the slope as the boys jeer at us with their best taunts. 
Mandy and I trek back in silence. We are almost out of the bushland when Mandy shrieks in pain behind me. Thinking Buckley may have gotten loose and followed us, I I, I turn round in panic. Mandy is waving her hand about frantically and I realise she's been bitten by a bull ant. I find a patch of bracken fern and rip off the top of a young shoot. Here, I say, taking Mandy's hand in mine, the bracken fern sap will help reduce the stinging. I put as much as I can over her swollen skin. Her tears start to ease up as she watches me. Who taught you that? She asks gently. My mum. I let go and Mandy withdraws her hand quietly. We look towards our hometown as a gentle breeze lifts strands of our hair. Today really sucked, says Mandy. I couldn't agree more. The next day, Mandy has given up. She pines for the lost wish. Oh, imagine a a lifetime supply of chocolate. It's another scorching day and we both stink of sunscreen. We have no money to spend or clues to chase up, so we walk without purpose. I bet the adults would wish for an end to this drought, she muses. My whole body is tense from another bad night's sleep. You never asked what I would wish for, I mutter, and she blushes. We part ways and I head towards home before abruptly changing direction. The rock drawings. The Barclay boys heard we were looking for bunyip drawings, but we never mentioned the spears. Their weatherboard house is rotting on one side. The yard's overgrown and the fences are vandalised. I feel sick looking at this house. The Barclay boys and their mum probably aren't home. But there he is, Barclay, slumbering in the shady front yard. A long chain trails from his neck to a metal post in the ground. In the drawings... The smallest stick figure kept his spear. Cody probably didn't want his spear to get stuck like the others. It could be here somewhere. I I slowly walk down the gravel driveway, hoping the cicadas and bird songs mask the sound of my footsteps from Buckley. Their backyard is messy. The boys must have collected odd bits of junk from the tip. Near the back steps there are wood shavings. There it is. The spear is resting against the wall on the patio. I can see the kitchen through the windows. Heart racing, I focus on the wish until finally my trembling hand grasps onto the spear. Then I let the panic overtake me and flee. Buckley wakes and strains against his chain, barking furiously as I run past. I keep on running until his barks are faint echoes in the distance. If anyone saw me with a spear near the bunyip, they'd get the wrong idea, so I hide it behind the geraniums near our veranda before ducking under the fence into Tucker's paddock. When I reach the tallest hill, breathing heavily, I realise I'm not alone. Standing in the middle of the field is an enormous bull. 
In rushing to get to the bunyip, I'd forgotten my usual caution. I knew Tucker owned a bull, but he always kept it in an isolated back paddock. This paddock was typically empty, though occasionally Tucker used it for his herd of female cattle. The bull had its horns removed as a calf, but that doesn't change the fact it could strike me with its massive head or or trample me to death. Beneath his smooth grey and black coat, the bull's thick-set body is, is full of twitching muscles. My mind races for an escape route. The bull jabs the ground with his hoof and snorts. The roadside. That will mean he has to travel the furthest distance uphill whilst I run downhill. I bolt for it. I hear the bull call out behind me and its hooves thud against the earth. I'm sliding downhill as he gathers momentum and my legs are jelly as I falter at the fence line, trying to find a way over or through, dropping to the ground. It's metres away as I roll under the fence onto the dirt road. The bull tries to slow to a stop, but hits into the fence with its shoulder. He snorts at me and calls out again. Rattling on the fence is a warning sign. Bull in paddock. Keep out. Over dinner, Dad mentions the bull was moved into the front paddock for easy transport after being sold. The new owners picked him up this afternoon. I asked to play outside, but Dad won't let me out after dark. Once the house is silent, I get out of bed and secretly pull on a cardigan and my gumboots. The gully is dark and the smell is terrible. It is rotting. Insects, ravens and foxes have been enjoying a a carrion feast, gradually returning the bunyip to myth and legend. My chance at obtaining the wish has been disappearing. But I have the answer now. Ah, spirit of the bunyip, I want you to grant me a wish in exchange for naming the one that killed you. The glossed over eyes are giant silver orbs reflecting the moon. My heart thumps heavily against my chest. It was the tallest stick figure that pierced the bunyip's neck and spine on the fabricated rock drawings. The one that killed you was Jesse Thomas Barkley. A soft breeze passes over the still water and through the gully. I continue breathing slowly, in and out, nauseated from the smell, aware of the mud clinging to my knees and the tainted water in my boots. The bunyip is silent. It takes more than that, doesn't it? I ask quietly. The bunyip stares vacantly at me. I know what you need, I whisper. I always suspected it would come to this. Revenge. I can do this before the bunyip disappears for that precious wish. I can do this. There is only one suitable way to enact revenge. Our house looks so dark without any of the lights on. I reach the veranda and start searching behind the geraniums when a male voice startles me. 
If you're looking for the spear, I took it. Dad is standing on the porch. A spear is a weapon, Kelly. It's not a toy to play games with. It's evidence, I retort. Dad has to give me back that spear. I decide to break my pinky swear. Mandy and I found something on Tucker's land, a, a bunyip in the creek, only, only it was dead. It had been stabbed. It was Jesse Thomas. He and his brothers made spears and Jesse killed the bunyip. That last spear is proof that he did it. My dad lets out a very heavy sigh and using a very adult tone, he says, Kelly, Jesse Thomas didn't kill a bunyip. His judgmental expression causes my chest to ache. Yes, he did. I know it. No, you don't, Kelly. Listen. No, you listen. I know it. I've always known it. He's a killer. I hate the sound of my own voice. It breaks down into a shrill wail and I know I sound like a child. My father looks wounded. As he moves towards me, I I see some tears flow down the crevices of his sun-worn face like rain filling ravines after a long drought. He kneels before me in the dust and utters the words I dread to hear. Kelly, it's not a bunyip. Yes, it is, I breathe between heavy sobs. And Jesse Thomas killed it. I can show it to you. He gently shakes his head, his right hand coming up to stroke my cheek. Everything melts away. All of my imagined maturity, my careful planning and my evidence gathering. I feel so out of place standing here in the backyard wearing my gumboots and pyjamas during the early hours of a Tuesday morning. One of Tucker's cows gave birth to a deformed calf last week. The mother nearly died in the creek. Tucker called on me and another few guys to help get her out and back to the herd. Then Jesse killed the newborn? I weep and he shakes his head. No, Kelly, it was stillborn. It never lived. I had been chasing a wish that never existed. It occurs to me that there was no sign of blood coming from the bunyip's wounds because it never had a heartbeat. My body deflates in despair. I'd always known it in my heart. I could never bring her back. My mind is flooded with images, sweeping hair that forms waves over slender shoulders, arms scooping me into a warm hug, her laughter and her kind eyes. Every part of her is gone forever. I want it to stop here, but Dad grips my shoulder. Kelly, you shouldn't hate Jesse Thomas. What happened wasn't his fault. I stubbornly wipe away my tears. Yes, it was. It was Jesse's fault and Dwayne's fault and Cody's fault and Melissa's fault. It didn't have anything to do with her. Why did she have to... Why did she have to die? They should have died. 
You don't really believe that, Kelly. Melissa Kennedy didn't ask to be beaten by her husband. She couldn't watch him repeatedly raise his hand against her young sons. She had to get out and she knew your mum was a strong woman, the kind that helps those who need it. Your mother was trying to protect Melissa and her sons. Do you understand, Kelly? She never would have wanted you to hate those boys. The tears come too fast. I can't wipe them back anymore. Dad hugs me for a very long time. Dad tells me to apologise to Jessie. So the next day I spend hours waiting, sitting on the ledge of the gutter with my back towards their house, the building my mother died in. The boys are surprised to see me. Jessie calms Buckley as we walk down the drive together and, and ushers his suspicious brothers inside. But I, I can't walk into that kitchen. Instead, Jesse and I sit on the back step. He listens as I confess that I was thinking of taking revenge. He seems unfazed by my story, but slightly unnerved by my tears. After a long silence, he begins talking about his dad and that night. We were loading up your mum's jeep when he came home early from the pub. Dwayne and Cody were in the car already, but I was I was too slow. He found me in the kitchen, saw Mum helping me with my bags. When she screamed, your Mum came running in. I realise he doesn't need to tell me this part. I know my Mum. Just like Dad said, she would try to protect Melissa and the boys, even if it meant putting herself in danger. I love her and and hate her for that. The whole time, I didn't do anything, Jessie continues. I just stood there. I hate myself. But I don't hate him anymore. Can I come over again tomorrow? I ask. Jessie looks uncomfortable. Maybe I'm pushing too hard. I've been avoiding them for so long. But he nods his approval. Okay. He walks me to the gate and Buckley barks again, baring his teeth and pulling on his chain. Jessie sees my nervous glance and approaches Buckley without fear. He's not a bad dog, really, he says, putting his hand on the dog's head. He was just treated badly. I feel like crying again. Instead, I smile Wave goodbye and promise myself that I will make it into that kitchen before summer's end. School will be starting again soon and I'm sure the Barkley boys will need a friend to keep them out of trouble. The end. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love your feedback. Subscribe for free to Scarlet Stiletto Bites wherever you get podcasts. And do visit our website, sistersincrime.org.au.